I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Are you ready? Let's do it. Hey, everyone. I hope you and yours had a great and safe holiday. Thank you for coming to hang out here. I'm Evelyn, and this is Repin. My next guest is an indigenous actor of Ojibwe and Scottish origin from Grassy Narrows, First Nation, and Toronto, Ontario. From age 2 to 13, he lived in many First Nation communities across Northern Ontario. He's a talented actor that you've seen on Mohawk Girls as Butterhead, also in Sci-Fi's Helix, and you know him best as Officer Owen Beckby in the CW's hit, Burden of Truth. Now, what happens when you've been raised within communities with cultures and teachings that are unfortunately quickly disappearing? There can be a collective pain, trauma that is inherited. So what do you do? And how do you open your heart and heal? My next guest struggled with this exact problem. As an actor, he understood creatively, he had to be able to shift according to the characters he was going to play. But how are you able to understand those characters when you're still struggling with your own position and understanding of the world personally? He's gonna talk about that struggle, how it impacted him, and how he's navigated that. Here with us today is Miguin Fairbrother. Thank you so much, Miguin, for being here. How have you been doing? You look great. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I am, I'm doing okay. This curveball of last year and a half, two years uh, has been, uh, I, I'm calling it the great shakeup. You know, we were all hooked up into a matrix 
And then all of a sudden, collectively, we were taken out of the matrix and, you know, we had to stay at home. And now we're slowly getting back into the matrix. But we had this time to question where we were, how we were doing it, where we want to go. Um, And I think those are the important questions that are still with me. I'm not interested in getting back to a new normal. I'm interested in getting back to a completely new paradigm, you know, uh, because what we were doing before wasn't working. Just FYI, in case anybody (laughs) didn't know, it wasn't working. I know we want to all get back to dancing and clubs and drinking our beers and and having our pizzas out at, at takeout and stuff. But what we're doing isn't working for for the earth, for each other, for the planet. So, you know, we've we've got to reimagine things and we got to continue to reimagine things. Absolutely. I think the great shakeup has started that journey and we're going to see some pretty cool shakings and happenings coming out in the next 5-10 years, I would say. I'm hoping you're right and that we're not just left to You know what I mean? But I want to go back again. First of all, congratulations on all of your success. Burden of Truth, a show that I've long enjoyed. I had your castmate, Nicola Karaya Demude, on the show. Shout out to Nicola. I absolutely adore her. And congratulations. I hear that you're doing Mohawk Girl. You've got a lot of stuff in development. Tell me a little bit about some of the work and projects that you've been doing. Again, in this great shakeup time, I've had to, to pivot like a lot of people. My livelihood depends on being in spaces with people or performing with people to people. And that all changed. So I had to pivot to content and, uh, you know, was writing for years. I would say, oh, I'm going to write. I'm going to go sit down and write this movie. I'm going to go sit down and write this thing. And I never did. And then all of a sudden I had all this time. So I had nothing but to write. So I did. A lot of people out there kind of did the same thing or are doing the same thing in their own field or sector. They had some time to do the things they always wanted to do. and They're, they're doing it. So I, I wrote a, a pilot uh-huh. for CBC based on a play that I developed with a creative partner of mine, Jack Greenhouse. Hopefully, when things get safe again, I'll be able to tour that play. It was a play that was based on my, my father's journey through residential schools, based on a lot of family knowledge and, and history. It's a piece that we developed into a one-man play where I play eight different, eight different characters, uh, dancing and singing and, and movement. And it's about welcoming people into a circle to let them know that they're a part of it. And that's not like something that's in history. Because I find that a lot of people, when they're thinking about, you know, historical things like uh, the Trail of Tears, like the, like the residential schools, like the scoops, they think, oh, that's in the past. Right. That's back then. That was my great, great, great grandfather. But actually, it's still happening today. And the effects of what happened from that point are still with us today. So yes, it is our responsibility and, and we are a part of it. So how do I get people to feel that? I think it's uh, by trying to put them in their hearts. So that's what we're trying to do with the play. I just sent my first draft of my pilot, literally yesterday, two days ago. So I'm, uh, I'm very happy about that. These are all incredible achievements. And going back to that play for just a second, I mean, if you're doing all eight parts, you know, on a practical level, I mean, when you're going to be exhausted by the end of the show. <laughs> and I hope you go to the bathroom before you start the show, because it looks like you're going to be on stage the entire time. Yes. But I love sort of the thread um, that you sort of touched upon in that in describing the play is, you know, what you do today has far reaching effects for generations to come. Absolutely. And I want to go back to Burden of Truth because, you know, I talked to Nicola, 
your castmate, who I, again, I, I adore, and we were talking about how this show really represents so much diversity and inclusion for the indigenous people, from what I understand, is that the show makes a point of making sure that there is representation behind the screens that is lending to the content that audiences see on the screen. And I think that has been validated because I know you wrote one of the episodes or several episodes and your character is, you know, Officer Owen Beckby, who is this sort of really stand-up kind of guy that you can trust. He is indigenous, much like your own background, correct? Yep. So tell me a little bit about your work and your experiences on Burden of Truth. I mean, the, the funny story that we always talk about uh, Owen Beckby at the beginning of his journey is that that I was hired to be a bad guy. Were you really? <laughs> yeah, I was. They, they originally hired me. I think I was playing a lot of bad guys or a lot of like less than good guys before I hit Owen. And uh, so anyways, I went in for a fitting. One of the head costume people was also a, a producer. She's like, took a look at me. And she's like, oh, my God, you're not a bad guy. We got we got to figure out how to keep you around. And then she went and pitched me, I guess, to the other producers and stuff. And they're like, well, I don't know. We already have him as this. So let's just leave him like that. And they're like, no, no, we got to we got to keep him around. He's a really nice guy. Like, he's, he's not a bad guy or whatever. And I guess it created a little bit of turmoil in the writer's room because they had this whole journey for this, this this character. But then they took a few different characters, put them together, and then made it uh, Nicola's partner on the mm-hmm. show. And then we discovered that he was also the, the stepdad of, of Luna. So once we figured out all of those pieces, it kind of just like really came together. So how do you relate to your character? I grew up, you know, had a lot of aunties and uncles and grandmas and grandpas raising me. And I am the role model to my nephews and nieces. So it's just like a relationship that I really understood. I think it's important to a lot of First Nations people is making sure that our young ones, are, our next generation is, is safe and taken care of and are looked after and they have everything they need. I guess just like any family, any grouping of people. But, you know, a lot of times I, I talk about family. It's uh, for First Nations people. It's, it's all we have now. It's all we've had for a long time. Our institutions, our family those are still being entrenched upon. So I understood who this man was. He was a role model. He was somebody who looks out for young people and somebody who's trying to do the right thing. And even uh, though he, there's some gray areas that he steps into. Some. To, to help the good guys, because the good guys need a little bit of help, right? Um, right. <laughs> because they're trying to do it all, you know, the right way. <laughs> right, right. Sometimes the right way and the right choices you know, you're dancing in shades of gray sometimes. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So so Owen, you know, w- was okay with dancing in the shades of gray. Well, I think overall the show is, I mean, it's got some great stories. Through the show, you guys lace these beautiful shots and sequences of these traditional indigenous practices. And I think it's a beautiful way to inform and to celebrate the indigenous culture. Mm-hmm. But when you took on the role of being in the writer's room, what were some of the things that you were important to you that you wanted to impart in the show from a writer's perspective? Mm, yes, yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think about my time back with um, uh, Hiri Yuki Sinada in Helix. He, he, I was his uh, kind of he, he kind of he stole me uh, from a from a village and then raised me as his like son slash security guard. I don't know if you've seen. Uh, no, can, uh, you, can you give people a little bit of a, a background of who yeah. he is? Yeah, Hiroyuki Sanada is, a, is, a, is an amazing uh, Japanese actor. 
you would have seen him in Avengers doing that fight scene with Jeremy Renner with the swords at the, okay. the top yeah, of yeah, the yeah, final sure. But anyways, he, he played my father. Incredible actor. I think that was one of the first like full-on English productions that he had done. And we got to know each other pretty well. And what I really took away from him in terms of just like one of the biggest teachings of many, many teachings that I took away from him. One of the big ones was just how proud he was of his culture and how important it was to him to get it right, to get his culture right in these big productions. It's almost like one of his journeys or main goals was to go to Hollywood and to make sure that they get it right. I, I would say that that's something that I took on for myself, you know, and, and it makes me very excited to just to think about that is because you see so many people not getting it right. <laughs> you, More times you say, than not, yeah, probably. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like the old, the old Hollywood is pretty, you know, terrible for that. Um, you know, there's still practices um, that are still happening today. Yeah, absolutely. There's a long way to go. There's a long way to go. And it's a, it's a little different, I think, in Canada as to America, whereas Canada, the conversation's a little bit uh, more advanced. Not, not that much more advanced, but it's a little bit more advanced than the States. But, but that's only because of the big Hollywood machine and where, you know, the images of Native people of, of, and Indigenous people, how it's been historically brought about and, and shown and continually shown. I think it comes down to... Because our medium is such an image-based medium that if maybe a, a, a big white exec doesn't see, like that doesn't look like a native, it doesn't, you know, in their mind, it's like everything that they've seen in their world has right. been Hollywood native or whatever. Then that's you know, when they, when they're looking at contemporary native people, they're like, oh, that's not a native person or that, right. that's not what I understand to be a native person when really... You know, that's just old ways of thinking. Yeah. So I think that's one of the things that's most important to me is just making sure that we're getting rid of that. Bringing people into the contemporary understanding of, of who and what an Indigenous person is and right. how we live today and how we uh, how we want to be seen, you know. Absolutely. It's sort of like, I'm just going to throw this out there. This is going to sound so stupid. But like, you know, back in the day, remember Baywatch? <laughs> when <laughs> yeah. all those just, just people running on the beach in slow-mo? Like, I think I heard once that was like one of the most popular shows in the world because people living overseas thought all Americans were like that because that's all they saw. <laughs> yeah. So that image continued to perpetuate. The reason why I brought that up was my very poor attempt of trying to underscore what you were saying earlier. You know, when an image in your head is stuck because of images that you've seen in the past, when it doesn't fit and, and modernize into contemporary times, the idea and that stereotype continues. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. But tell me a little bit about your family and your childhood. My, my life is just like, it's, it's, a stri- it's an interesting story, I guess, and uh, gives me inspiration to, to, to keep telling stories. So I was born in Toronto. My mom and dad met, I guess, in the, in the scene. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to tell this, but <laughs> what, what? my mom only recently told me this, like recently too. There's a place in Toronto called the Native Canadian Centre. It's a space for Indigenous people to go and take part in programs. You know, there's a gift shop there. There's language programs. There's uh, sometimes sweats. There's powwows, drum socials, and uh, programming for youth. And and I used to think, that, like, I think that was the narrative, too, that my mom told me. She's like, oh, yeah, we met at the Native Canadian Centre. I was working for this program, and he was working for that program. But then later, when I was older, she's like, oh, okay, actually, ha, 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 this is the real story. <laughs> okay, I'm and holding so, myself. Okay. So, so they they met in jail. <laughs> my my mom my mom was like doing some work for something and Guelph met in Guelph the Guelph jail my dad was just like doing some kind of transition program like almost like a halfway house or some kind of program out of it and he was getting out of jail and I guess uh the love music was playing that day and the flowers were, uh, I don't know. <laughs> that is um, a far departure from working at a community center. <laughs> I know. But but then their work did make it to the community center because that's, okay. you know, they, they couldn't stay away from each other. They got it. You know, they worked with youth. They worked with people. And, and he was he, he loved working with youth. He was he was just like that was one of his main things was just working with young people. And and it brought him a lot of joy. What is your background? My father's Ojibwe, and uh, my mother is uh, a second or third generation Scottish English. Can you give some background um, for people who may not be familiar with the Ojibwe people? Yeah, Ojibwe is a people, like it's the people around the Great Lakes, basically. It's a really, really vast region, actually. It's above the Great Lakes, all the way over to Manitoba, all the way over to uh, Ottawa, and all the way down towards Toronto, and then pretty far up north, anyway. Okay. <laughs> They are indigenous people. Yeah, it's one of the large, I would say it's one of the largest, you know, it's probably somebody going to fact check me, but it's, I would say it's one of the largest land land territories uh, is the Ojibwe uh, people in their land territories. So that, you know, it's the Ojibwe, the Cree, and then probably the Blackfoot or, or the Sioux. Got it. Okay. So back to your parents. They, so they met and uh, got together and then, uh, you know, I, uh, I popped out. <laughs> My father is an artist. He was a visual artist, beautiful, like masterful paintings, so much so that it's kind of made me go, well, I guess I'm never going to try painting because I'm, I'm never going to be as good as him. But I have actually recently, but that's kind of the way I thought. Before. So with your mix of Scottish English 
and Ojibwe background coming at you because of your parents. How did you see the world? Like, what kind of kid were you back in the day? Oh, so uh, I was confused. <laughs> it was How confusing, so? you know. Well, uh, you know, because I wasn't quite like full native, or I wasn't quite full white either, right? My friends and my my family members loved me. Like, I've always felt way more love, <laughs> just like open love. And now that just means like, oh, yay, come hugs and kisses, really, like really affectionate. I always felt that more on my indigenous side, my, my indigenous grandmas and grandpas, um, whereas there was a bit more of a, like, a, a let's hug and now we're going to stay over here on my <laughs> Scottish English side, um, which is a bit more formal, right? So yes, I actually always felt more home in my indigenous uh, families' homes. So it, that, that was strange and, and I didn't really understand it. I was just a kid. I just wanted to play. We wanted to watch movies and I would get made fun of by the older native kids and teased and beaten up and whatever. And that's because you didn't look indigenous enough. Correct. And, uh, and I was the white teacher's son. My, my, my mom was a teacher. Right. So I was the white teacher's son. And and uh, and then I would get beat up. But nowadays, like I go back there and they're all like, oh, hey, me going like I'm taller than all of them. And they're all like, hey, buddy, <laughs> how's my buddy doing? Hey, you know, and all this stuff. It's, it's water under the bridge, but it's yeah. just like things you don't really understand when you're growing up. It's just like this. Oh, you just think this is the way it is. Right. Then when I got to the city, that was different, too. It's just like because now I, ha- I had spent most of my life growing up in First Nations communities. And that was the culture that was in me and the way I talked, the way I walked, the way I looked, uh, felt and spoke and everything was, you know, come, coming from First Nations background and uh, in Treaty 3. Uh, when I did my high school there. And then I went to Toronto. That was like a big culture shock is just to realize. And then meeting urban First Nations people that like really looked First Nations, but they didn't have any of the culture. Right. That, that was weird to me too. I think I'm still trying to understand, you know, who and what I am because uh, the background that I have is, is different. You know, it's just yeah. like, I was raised in, in a lot of communities, not just one community. Like I was raised in really far northern communities up in Webequay and Big Trout Lake. And I still have a lot of like adopted family there. I was also in Pick Mulbert First Nation and I have a lot of my best friends still still live there. And and then my mom taught on other communities and my my father now, my, my stepfather, he's from Whitefish Bay. So that's kind of the community that we've spent a lot of time over the last uh, two decades. It seems like you definitely gravitate a little bit more towards your indigenous culture because this is a podcast Miguel. Yeah. Um, how would you describe what you look like <laughs> because people hear indigenous and they may have mm-hmm. a million different images can you describe to people you know what you look like it depends on any given day <laughs> what i look like because right now i've let my beard grow out and uh, and I'm looking a lot like Louis Riel, if anybody knows Louis Riel. So <laughs> yeah. Louis Riel is, a, you know, he's a historical badass, is what I say. But when I shave and I'm just like, and I've, you know, stood out in the sun for five minutes, then I, you know, I start looking more, uh, more indigenous passing. I, I, have green, I have green eyes. You know, in the summer, I get really dark. In the winter, I can right. turn a bit more uh, lighter. Uh, I can wear a beard and I can not wear a beard. So, um I can, I can maybe, maybe if I went to Scotland and learned about the culture there, I could play a, a real awesome 
Scott right. character, <laughs> but but right. in terms of my energy and 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 my understanding and where I come from and the way I think, like you said, is uh, is is more you know it's my my Ojibwe heritage and background and a, a lot of Cree now. Uh, I have a lot of Cree influences in the last uh, decade, um, practicing a, a Cree martial art and also living in uh, Cree territory here in Winnipeg. Now, one of the things about this podcast is about representation, not just in terms of ethnicity or race, but it is about who you are and the, the person you are behind the talent. And we talk about that because a lot of our past experiences do shape us, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm-hmm. Can you share an experience where it may have been difficult for you, um, but you learned from it, and now you draw mm-hmm. power from that experience that may have been difficult? Yeah, that's that's a wonderful question. I mean, I think there's been a lot of those moments in my life, seemingly uh, at, at, at the time, it can feel pretty, pretty bad or intense or, or traumatic. And then later on, you start to unpack the gifts of these experiences and you realize that they are gifts. It's an opportunity, right? It's an opportunity to shift your awareness and your perspective. And it's interesting, that question is just like, what, what are these moments that have like defined me? And a lot of those moments I've, I've actually taking the time to look at (laughs) and investigate. And now I'm writing about them and, uh, and speaking about them. Can you share one that was impactful? It was in my final year of study at York university. And I was doing some, a lead role. I was, I was, you know, getting seen more and put on the stage more for our acting conservatory of our, you know, it was our final graduating year. And we had, we have these sessions where, where we go and we, go one-on-one with the teachers and they kind of give us feedback on how the year is gone or maybe something that we need to work on. And it came up that, that I wasn't letting the other students in or, you know, I wasn't really trusting them enough to go places or to be, you know, to be, to be the actor that I needed to be at that moment, I guess. What I told them was that the way I saw it was this, that I don't think they can handle it. (laughs) I don't think my fellow classmates can handle you know, what I've been through. I don't think that they can handle the pain and the suffering that I carry within me. And, uh, and they kind of said, oh, okay, but I, I think you need to trust that, that they will. And, you know, I was, I was crying. I was, it, was a, it was a tough conversation. I, I don't think I like completely changed at that moment, but over time, that's kind of been my constant uh, creative struggle is, you know, is opening my heart up depending on, you know, wherever I am, like even now, speaking from a place of heart rather than speaking from my head yes and and speaking like oh here's the logical thing that she needs to hear or whatever but it's like i got to connect with this right yeah there was also a similar meeting with our teachers and, and they said you mean when you're really good at you know at the, what we're doing but it's like you are playing with a toy and you're not really sharing with anybody what they said was this you know it's based on a truth that you have and as an actor, uh, uh, you have to let go of that truth. To me, that was kind of almost almost traumatic just to hear that because my, right. my understanding of who I was was based on my culture, was based on my my spirit name, was based on my colors, was based on the medicines that I grew up with, was based on the ceremonies that I went to as a young person. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where my truth was. And I had a very strong understanding of who I was and and where I come from for these teachers or for these non-Indigenous way of thinking, if we can say it that way, mm-hmm. they don't think like that. They just think there's a job, <laughs> you got to do this thing and get it get it done or whatever. 
that was a hard bit of information for me to hear. And so I, I fought that note at first. I fought it and I was just like, no, I'm not, I don't care what you say. I'm going to do it my way because this is how I understand who and what I am. Mm-hmm. But then I started seeing my acting work maybe suffer a little bit because I was only doing, I was only doing one thing. I was only being, you know, my indigenous self or something like that. Whereas as an, as an actor, I think you want to be able to shift. You want to be able to change. You want to be able to take on different skins. You want to be able to adjust yourself. So that comes with an awareness of yourself. So I had to do a lot of that work to really look at myself, to see who I really was and what I really am. And I'm still doing that work today. It was those things that really kind of messed me up because I had, I had feathers, I had cultural items that were with me that helped me to stay connected to my culture. But all of those things left after, kind of after that, when I was like giving up my truth and, um, and it was replaced with a bottle. I uh, took up uh, substances and uh, that replaced my feathers. It replaced my, my tobacco and my sages and my, my cedar, my medicines. And, um, and that happened for solid five to 10 years. Yeah. Until I was able to kind of, you know, let that stuff go and reconnect with who I was and, and my people and my culture and, and my ceremonies and the language and too. And that's, that's what I realize now too, is just how important the language is and how that really does set up a whole, your whole understanding of the world and belief systems and the way you think and, and how you respect people and how you look at other cultures. It's, it's all in the language. So I could really see why it was important for the Canadian government and maybe the American government to get rid of indigenous languages, because if you kill the language, you actually kill the coding system of how our knowledge is passed from generation to generation. So that's where I'm at now. (laughs) I want to go back to something that you said. You said the other students can't handle my pain Mm. and what you carry. Mm -hmm. Can you share some of what that was that you felt like people couldn't handle that made you who you are? Yeah. There's personal pain and then there's collective pain, I would say. I liken it to the Holocaust. We've had, I would say, even several Holocausts in our community. You're talking about the community's pain, right? Culturally. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. collectively the community's pain. Um, and not just Ojibwe, but all, all First Nations people who had to endure these harmful practices. Right. It's a collective pain that we all feel and uh, that we all maybe harbor and hold but we hold it together. So in one instance, it's something that binds us together, but it's also something that can hold us back. True. If we stay in our pain and we stay in our trauma, then I feel like we're only hurting ourselves, you know, instead of working through it. So why did I think that they couldn't handle it is because, I don't know, like the, I judged them, right? I, I would judge them that they're they're just these uh, middle-class, white, socially um, well-off Right. families like that's where all these kids are coming from and i'm coming from the res <laughs> you know i don't think it's necessarily about judging them sometimes when you go through something that powerful from my perspective and i don't know if you've shared the same idea but when you go through something that powerful it sort of separates you from the rest of the world because not everyone had the same experiences and if you i'm going to use the word unleash it it can be almost too much for someone to get their head around if you haven't gone through what you've gone through. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you share that same thought? And then how did you transform that thought of they can't handle it to trusting them to handle it? Mm -hmm. 
And I don't know if it's necessarily First Nation teaching or, or, you know, specifically, but it's just the idea that we're all doing the best we can with what we got. Right. That philosophy has really helped shift a lot of things. So I, I can see the oppressor. I can see the person, the abuser, I can, and I can see them with love. And that's something that I had to shift inside of myself. At some point, we have to move through the trauma or the, the anger or whatever it is, that feeling that's there, because then it's only hurting ourselves. We have to move through it so that we can then, yes, transform it. We move it. We do something about it. Right. And anger can feel like you are doing something because it gives you that kind of fire on the inside. But you need to transform that. You have to go a step further even. My working theory these days is through love and through, through the heart. It's the quickest way to somebody looking at you in the eyes, speaking to you from, from my heart, I think you would recognize that right away. And we yeah, can have a conversation absolutely. from that place rather than me coming up with some kind of statistic, yeah. <laughs> explaining it to you in that way, you know, because our, our world is full of numbers these days. And also using art to transform myself and those around me, I think is what kind of <laughs> inspires me now going, okay, no, we have a chance. We do have a chance, but we got to do the work. We got to be out there doing the work, all of us. The last thing I would say about that that gives me hope is that just before the pandemic happened, I had the opportunity to go to Banff Art Center in Alberta. And it was a group of First Nations people from all different backgrounds of theater, film, dance, singing, everything, like choreography. And we were working on a script and a play. But what was really cool about that moment for me was just seeing that the other warriors are out there doing their work. To me, that just like, Hardened my resolve, I guess, or re-inspired me to just keep going and with, with such an energy. It's just that right. the other warriors, I trust that the other warriors are out there doing their work. They're writing, they're dancing, they're speaking, they're, you know, holding circles, they're doing ceremonies, they're, they're on the front lines. Right. Um, and so I got to do my part. Everyone has to do their part. You know, let me just also say that I'm glad to find that you're in a good place. When you went from trading your words, feathers to substance, what brought you back to where you are today? And what would your advice be for those who are in that place of darkness and confusion? Self-love and self-respect. You know, it's hard to have self-respect and, and respect yourself if you don't love yourself, right? So, right. I mean, that's kind of the first relationship I say that any of us have to take care of is the relationship with yourself. Because if you don't have a relationship with yourself or a good one, then how are you ever going to have a, an okay relationship with anybody else? Whatever you need to do to do that. For, for some people, it's, it's reconnecting with your mother, your father, or your brother, your sister, family. And also to do, like, you have to do your own work, do your own work to love yourself. And you can't really expect <laughs> other people um, to be doing, to be where you're at. You can do your work on your side of the equation, but you can't force the other side to do their work. You know, hopefully by living the way you're living will give other people permission to do the same thing. If you're the first one up to the buffet, then other people are going to come to the buffet. Right. There is a collectiveness in looking after ourselves individually, I would say. If I'm healthy and balanced and, and I love myself and I love my community and I can do all the work that I can do for my community but I'm, I'm loving myself and I'm starting from this place and I'm smudging myself to let go of the past and let go of the, the thoughts that get bunged up in relation to the, my surroundings, which is, you know, the trees, the grass, the animals. Those are the things that keep me 
sane, you know, because uh, right. when I think about what humans have done to this earth, yeah, it makes me kind of want to burn it all down. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, like, is that the only thing that we're going to listen to? I mean, it's, climate change is happening now, and right. it seems to be, you know, in everybody's mind because, well, it's real. Earth will just shake us off if she, <laughs> if she feels like it. It's just like knowing that if I'm doing my work and I trust that the people out there are doing their work and we're doing it, you know, really looking inside of ourselves, it's going to shift the collective if we're doing doing this personal work, doing this hard work, doing this healing work, inner healing work, I guess. And it just makes you a better artist too. Um, whereas maybe I'm not spending so much time, like, you know, for a lot of time when I was, when I was drinking and using substances, I'd be down on myself about not getting that thing done or not finishing that script or not, not making it to the audition because I was hung over or something like right. that. It's kind of making that inner agreement with yourself to ask, like, do I really want to let this go right now? Is that where I'm at? Or do I want to use this substance? It's so it's, I guess it's being honest with yourself, right? It's like, where are you at in this journey? Because there's a lot more that you can do if you have all your senses. It's not an easy thing to get your arm around and it's a lot of hard work. It's painful. <laughs> but it is a worthwhile process to do the work on you and for you. But I think it's great that you are actively working as a writer, as an actor, to bring these stories to the forefront. What's the thing that you have brought that has been fundamentally who you are? My devilish humor sometimes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my willingness to laugh at myself and laugh at uh, at you. And at you, you know, like you and, and society, like just to be able to laugh at things. When we talk, there's a lot of laughing um, going on. So I would say, you know, the ability to, I guess, not take myself so seriously. And then also, I would say, just say the way I look at things, just the way I see things. It's probably, I guess now that I'm getting to know more and more people and putting myself out there, it's like I, I, I get to realize that, uh, yeah, not a lot of people think like that or or, or, uh, or not yet anyway, you know, um, we need to do things a different way. The way some of my uncles would say is it's so simple. It's complicated. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's frustrating. yeah. If I have to say something, it's kind of harsh or it's kind of like heavy or somebody's not ready for it. I'll still say it anyway, because I trust that whatever's coming through me, like as a conduit, I guess, because I have a connection to my ancestors, I have a connection to my my family, my history, and I listen. And uh, But what was told to me recently, too, is this, I have to relearn, I have to get back into the language again in a bigger way than just like, you know, basic uh, greetings. and But actually re-upping my Ojibwe knowledge, because the elder told me that my ancestors have things that they want to tell me. They want to communicate with me, but they speak the language. So <laughs> so I have to learn the language so that I can actually like receive what the what they're telling me. With your work, how are you going to continue to make sure that the Ojibwe culture or in the indigenous culture is is continued to be present in a modern way? How are you going to bring that into your work? Uh, I'm going to take it over. I'm going to take it all over. <laughs> awesome, awesome. <laughs> Don't tell anybody that. Or if if they do, just make it a joke. Because I'm, I'm coming for them. And I'm going to bring the community and family that I need with me to take it over. You know, it's the whole thing of give the land back to. You know, if you want to think about that. And we, it's not even our land. It's like we're stewards of it. You know, like, it's not like we don't own anything. Like, that's the that's the concept that people don't really understand. It's like, there is no such thing as ownership. You can't take it with you. 
somewhere along the line, we've lost that for some reason. I don't know why. My, you know, my secret goal is to take it all over, uh, get all of the money, buy all of the land, and then give it, then give it back to the grandmothers. I like it. (laughs) You know, like, it's like, we've had our chance. Like men have had their chance. Uh, now it's time for, for our cookums and our, and our aunties and our mothers to, uh, to lead us. I think your to-do list is exponentially longer than mine, (laughs) but I think it's really great that you're actively being a storyteller and making sure that there is some representation that is out there in a contemporary way to forward those lessons and those cultural values and perspectives so I think that what you're doing is so important. And I love that your plan is to take over the world. Let me know if there's part of what I can do to support you with that. Yeah, through stories. We're going to do it all through stories. Yes. And I'm glad you brought up the representation thing too. Is you know, And that's another reason why I got into the business and why I'm doing writing now. It's so important. It's so powerful for communities and people to see themselves in TV shows, in plays, in books. I didn't realize how important it was until seeing the feedback, seeing the response from the communities, seeing how it changes people's lives, literally just from seeing a show, seeing themselves represented in in some way, like finally, oh, geez, you know, it's it's gratification. It it validates them, their their life, the people watch it, our viewers watching. It's my honor to be able to do that and to do it for my nephews and my nieces and my family. It's a privilege to do this job. So Miguel, it's time. Sign us off. Let me know who you are and what you represent. Hmm. Uh, yeah, my name is Miguin Fairbrother, and I represent the voice of the rising tide. Great thanks to Miguin Fairbrother for his time, for opening his heart and sharing his experiences. We should follow his lead, take the time to reconnect with our history and cultures, and help preserve our own and each other's history. Ultimately, it makes us all richer. Now, I know you're going to want to connect with Miguin, so I have his social media links in the episode description. And get ready, because next we have an immensely talented and hilarious stand-up comic and producer. From across the pond, we have Gina Yashere. If we're going to be creating this show with this Nigerian woman and her family, we're three white guys we don't know anything about. Africa, Nigeria, the cultures, the people, what her family would like. And that's where you come in. We'd love you to be sort of a a consultant on this to help us get these things right. So in my head, I'm like, a fucking cons- an African consultant? This sounds like utter bullshit. Hey, people, this is Jeannie Ashway, comedian extraordinaire, and you better not miss my episode of Reppin' coming up next. Just as a warning, you're going to want to bring an extra pair of pants for that one because you're going to laugh till you pee. And make sure you go back and check out past episodes of Reppin'. You'll meet incredible talent and people who have shared amazing lessons and insight with you. Download them all because, you know, who doesn't need a podcast that has a pop of positivity and power? Don't forget to share, subscribe, and leave a review because as creators, that means the world to us to hear from you. You can do that on Apple, Good Pods, Podchaser, or wherever you're getting the goods. Want to connect? I'm on Twitter at Reppin Podcast and check me out on Instagram at Reppin underscore podcast. Thank you so much to my technical director, musical composer, Mr. Nelson Pinero. Always love and thanks to Gracie Kong. 
Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, stand up and represent. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.